you are listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Brampton, Ontario. For more information about our church, please visit harvestbrampton.ca. Let's bow our heads and pray together. Heavenly Father, we come by your Spirit in the name of your Son and to declare that your Son, Jesus Christ, is holy and that he is worthy. And we are struck in this moment of our our own unholiness, our own unworthiness, Lord. But yet you invite us, Lord. And because of the cross of your Son and because of his shed blood on our behalf, you invite us into your holy presence and into all that you are, all that you are worth, your worthiness, Lord. And you invite us to to know you and to be loved by you and to love you, to be called your sons and your daughters. Yet we are so unworthy, but we delight to declare that that you alone are worthy. So God, we pray right now that you would open your word to us, that you would speak to us so clearly and powerfully, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. We live in the midst of a famine. We live in a land of abject poverty. Uh, Not a famine as it relates to food and not a poverty as it relates to uh, money, but it is a famine, and we are impoverished nonetheless. We live in a world where people are starving for community, where people are longing for meaningful, strong relationships, and yet day after day goes by without being nourished by those kinds of of relationships. It's the world that we live in. We live in a world that although we long for community, we long to connect with one another, we live in a world that, that our culture prizes the individual over the community. The way that we teach in our schools, the way the messages we receive uh, in the media, in our culture is The triumph of the individual, the importance of self-individual expression at the expense of community. So those are some cultural factors. There's also economic and geographical factors as well. We live in the greater Toronto area where over the last several decades we've seen uh, urbanization and then the the development of the suburbs and, and we are a society that is unique in that previous cultures... You lived in the same city where your family lived. You worked in the same city where you lived. You went to church in the same city where you lived. And then even here in this room, we've got people, they live in Orangeville. They they work in Bolton. They go to church in Brampton. Their family's out in London. We have other people here, they, they... They live in Mississauga, their families in South Asia, they work in Burlington and they go to church in Brampton. We are are in a commuter culture where we are just spread so thin and it has an influence on how we do a community. 
We also live in a world where everyone is buzzing on the opiate of false community in social media. We think that we're connecting with people 144 characters at a time or one carefully edited photograph at a time with comments full of emojis. And we have this false sense of relationship and community because of what's happening on our devices. And then, within the, getting a little closer to home, within the church world, we live in a, we live in a world with, with so many denominations. We live in a city that has so many different churches. And so if relationships start to get hard, rather than working through it and going deeper to strengthen those relationships, there's always the temptation to just get up and move to some other church and to start some new community and, and some new group of relationships until that gets too difficult. And then we move on to the next one. We live in this world that is longing for community, and there is a lot up against us, driving us away from one another rather than bringing us together. But as we turn to the pages of the Bible, we see that God desires that we would live in community, and every generation at all times, no matter where where or when you live, there's always been certain factors that make community more difficult, but God has provided his spirit, and by the power of the gospel, God transforms selfish and sinful individuals in order to build them into a holy and loving community. And so we've been in the series called A Built to Last, and we've been thinking about this idea of what has God given us so that we can build something that will last here on earth and on into eternity as a church. And we started with the foundation in the first message. This will be a quick review for some of us. Our foundation is Jesus Christ, Peter's declaration at Caesarea Philippi. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, you are, you are Peter. On this rock I will build my church. And, so, and Jesus said, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. This, this church will be built. And then we've been going through the book of Acts, searching this, this, the, all 28 chapters, trying to find out how was the church built. And we've, we've noticed these four pillars that we hold dear. There were four things that the church was focused on. There was prayer, and there was preaching, and there was worship, and there was evangelism. And so these are the, these are the things that keep us connected To the foundation, if we're doing these things, preaching Christ, praying in the name of Christ, proclaiming Christ, and worshiping Christ, that keeps us focused on the foundation, and that is where the community is based. Our church is founded on Jesus Christ, structured by the pillars, but it's not just just what we do, it's who we are, and how we relate to one another as a community. And so we're going to be looking at the book of Acts. If you have a Bible with you, you can open it there. If you don't have a Bible, just put your hand up. The ushers are coming up and down the aisle right now. We're going to turn to a lot of passages of Scripture. Things are going to make a lot more sense if you have a Bible to follow along. If you don't own a Bible, this is our gift to you. We're going to see the power of God to take selfish individuals, sinful individuals, and to transform them into a loving and holy 
community. Here's the interesting thing. Acts gives us the clearest window into community in the whole Bible. We, we see how the church lived. But here, here's something that's just fascinating to me. The word love appears in every book in the New Testament except one. Every single book in the New Testament has the L-O-V-E. The word love is in there somewhere, whether it's the Greek eros or phileo or, or agape, whatever it may be. The word love appears in some form in every single book in the New Testament except Acts. Does that mean that there isn't any love in Acts? You see, love isn't just about a word that you say or a feeling that you feel. Word, love is about your acts. It's about what you do. And so we are going to see, we're going to see such a dynamic, loving community in the book of Acts. The word is never going to be used, but we're going to see the example time and time again. And this, just like we have some things in opposition that make community difficult for us, that the early church had difficulty as well. So let's get into Acts chapter 2, find uh, verse 9 with me. So Acts chapter 1, Jesus is with his disciples and then he ascends into heaven and then the Holy Spirit descends and they are able to speak in these different languages and the first sermon is given. But look at the diversity of the first group of Christians. They're, they're listed in chapter 2, verse 9, Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, those are people from Iran, residents of Mesopotamia, that's Syria and Iraq, Judea, that's just the surrounding area of Jerusalem, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, into verse 10, Phrygia and Pamphylia, that's the, the, the area around Turkey, Egypt, Libya, Cyrene, that's all Africa, Jews and proselytes, Cretans, and uh, Arabians. So you've got people from Turkey, people from Africa, people from the Middle East, people from Europe. Rome was in there as well. And how, how is it that this incredibly diverse community, how is it that they were able to come together and to live together and to love one another? And I, I, I want us to go through the book of Acts today and I want us to ask ourselves some, some serious questions and the first question is this, are we a committed community? Are we a committed a community? If, if we are going to have a loving community, there's, there's no real love unless there is commitment. That's the, the power of marriage. It's is not just that I, I feel some things about you, it's that I am committing for the rest of my life to love you. Love involves a commitment. And we see that in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. We see, we see, this is Acts 2, 42 to 47. Those of you who have been Christians for a long time, you know this passage. This is the quintessential text to describe Christian community. And it begins with this powerful phrase in Acts 2, 42. They devoted themselves are we a committed community? Are we devoted to some things? The meaning of the word devoted, it's actually a nautical term or a term from the marketplace. Devoted is actually a word used to describe a ship in port. It, it, it's up against the pier, it's tied off, and that ship is ready to go. 
The cargo is on board. The crew is on board. The provisions have have been made. All they're waiting for is for the captain to say go and to set the direction and that ship is ready to go. It is committed. They are there. They are waiting. And we as a church, we need to be ready to go. There are some core things that we need to as Christians to be ready to do at all times. And this isn't in your notes, but I just want to highlight out of this passage five quick things as a sub-point here under this first point. Five things that we must be committed to, that the early church was devoted to. Acts 2.42, it says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' uh, teaching. First of all, their commitment was doctrinal. How did all these people from all these different backgrounds, how did they become united into this family of God? It was doctrine. It was what they believed about God. So excited about this course we're about to offer, doctrine and discipleship. And it's not just filling our heads with knowledge, it's how we live it out. And the early church was committed to learning, to studying, to applying the truth of the gospel to their lives. Are you committed to that? Are are you committed to our doctrine as a church, to growing deeper in our understanding of God's word? There was a a doctrinal commitment. Second of all, there was a relational commitment. There was a relational commitment. It says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. You see, some of us think that relationships should just happen naturally. That you just, you, just, you just sort of randomly spend time with people, then all of a sudden you become really close. Now, the early church, it, it isn't that fellowship just happened naturally. They devoted themselves to fellowship. It was, it was part, of, part of what they needed. They needed to do it on purpose. It wasn't easy. It's not easy to learn doctrine. It's not easy to establish strong, deep relationships. They were devoted to it. It was, a, it, was a relational, it was a relational commitment. It was also, Roman numeral three, it was a worshipful commitment. Verse, verse 42 at the end, it says, to the breaking of bread, that's referring to communion or the Lord's Supper, and the prayers. They were worshiping together. It, Verse 43, and awe came upon every soul. They were worshiping. Down verse 47, it says that they were praising God, that there is a, a commitment to worship uh, together. Also, there was a financial commitment. Verse 43 continues, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Look at verse 44, and all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. They they were committed financially. If, 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 If someone in the church needed help, they were ready. Their boat was prepared. And they were willing, they were committed, they were devoted financially, and lastly, their commitment was intentional. It was intentional. Look at verse 46. Day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. It was something that they did regularly, was getting together day by day. And they were intentional about where they went and who they were with. There was a large gathering, do you see it there, in the temple. And then there were smaller gatherings in their homes, and that's what we're committed to, 
And we want all of our people here at Harvest to be devoted to those two things, devoted to getting together on Sundays as a large group to worship the Lord together, but then also meeting in homes and getting together in smaller groups to allow those relationships to go deeper and deeper. It was intentional. Again, these things didn't just happen. They devoted themselves to these things. And so the church can continued uh, to grow as it says in verse 47 praising God and having favor with all people the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved some people think that you know a smaller church is more loving than a larger church well this this was a fairly large church in Acts 242 3,000 people were saved during the first service and it's not the size of a church some people think that well Churches that are, if you have a certain target area or a focus group, you focus on this particular, this particular kind of person, that that's what creates relationship in a church. Well, that, that wasn't the case in the early church. It's, it's the love that comes from a commitment. Are we a committed community? So you think about those things. Are you a church or are you a, a, a church member or, or someone who belongs to this church that is committed to those things. We're going to be a, a church that's built to last. Those five things need to be happening in our lives. And, and we see that there in Acts 2 of 42. The church continues to grow in Acts 3. Peter and, um, Peter and John uh, are involved in a miraculous healing. Peter gets the opportunity to preach again. More people get saved and and then they get, find themselves on trial before the Sanhedrin. Peter continues to, uh, to witness there in, in, in chapter 4. Then in Acts chapter 5, we're given a real picture of a commitment. When we're talking about commitment, we're not just playing around here. And at, at the end of Acts chapter 4, there's a, 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 another description of just the radical generosity of the, of the early church. How they were committed financially. And then Acts chapter 5 Verse 1, we're introduced, it says, But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And they, they saw what was happening and they saw how other Christians were being sort of praised for their generosity. And they thought, wow, that would be great. We'd love to have other people kind of look at us and think about us as being mature and spiritual and generous like that. They wanted that approval, but they also wanted the financial stability and security And so what they did is they decided to sell their property, keep some of it for themselves, but tell the church that they were giving the whole amount because then they get get what they really want. They get the approval from other people and they get to keep some money for themselves. They weren't fully committed. Their boat wasn't totally loaded. They weren't completely on board. Look at how Peter responds to him in verse 3. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? And Peter emphasizes, listen, Ananias, no one was forcing you to sell this property. It was, it was your own thing. But notice how he says, why, why did you lie to the Holy Spirit? I bet that morning when Ananias was doing his devotions, he wasn't, you know, reading his Bible and then praying. And, dear Lord, I'm going to give the whole amount of money. 
I'm sure he knew that God knew what was really happening. And maybe he was presuming on the grace of God. But he thought he could turn around and lie to the church. But look what Peter says. In lying to the church, in lying to your brothers and sisters, it's like you're lying to the Holy Spirit. And then Ananias is struck dead. And then Sapphira is struck dead. And then it says that fear came upon the whole community. We're not messing around here. This isn't a game. We're not playing church. And I'm not saying that anyone's going to get struck dead for not being fully committed. But this is in the Bible for a reason. This should sober us. There should be a sense of seriousness when we think about community and our commitment to community and relationships with one another and integrity with one another. This is a serious thing. Is your boat fully loaded? Are you ready to go? Are you committed doctrinally and relationally and worshipfully, financially and intentionally? Because this isn't a game. Are we a committed community? Holiness matters. And God wants to take us as selfish and sinful individuals and build us into a loving and holy community. The next question I want to ask, and these these next questions will come a little uh, faster now, is are we a serving community? Are we a serving community? Look with me at Acts chapter 6. This is a passage we've looked at a number of times uh, in this series. Acts 6 verse 1 says, Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up the preaching of the word to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Are we a serving community? They were struggling in their serving at the early church in Jerusalem. And although there was so much racial and cultural harmony in Acts chapter 2, tension is arising between the Hellenists and the Jewish people. And it is all around serving, this idea of, of making sure that the needs are met within the church. And notice how seriously the disciples take it. The, the apostles call the whole church together. They have a, they have a massive meeting. And they're looking for, this is a relatively simple job, to knock on doors and to give out food, to set tables when they, when they have a gathering, to make sure everyone is looked after. It's a pretty simple job, but they're looking for people who are filled with the Spirit. Because you, if your church is going to be built to last, you don't want people who are building with wood, hay, and straw. You don't want people who are serving in their own strength and using human wisdom, whether it's something big or something small, you want them to be filled with the Spirit. That's why everyone who serves in our church fills out an application. We want to know, are you saved? Tell us your testimony. Why do you want to serve? Because we take serving very seriously because the early church took serving very seriously. But here's the amazing thing. So they... They get these seven guys, they check them out, they do the reference checks, then they pray for them. Again, they're doing a, a seemingly mundane task. 
but they prayed. And look at the result in verse 7. And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Think about, it. Think about what it would mean for a priest to become a Christian. Their whole family history and heritage and their present income and job was dependent upon the relevance of the sacrificial system. And for them, you would think the least likely group to become a Christian would be a priest because everything they stood for was animal sacrifice. And Christianity was saying, we don't need any more animal sacrifice. Jesus was sacrificed once for all. And yet, these priests were coming to Christ. All because seven guys decided to hand out food. Sometimes when we think about the Acts in the book of Acts, we think about the big Acts. The miracles, the preaching in front of large groups. We think about these big things. Don't overlook the small Acts. And the significant things that happen when a certain group of people decide to serve behind the scenes. Those apostles said they wanted to devote themselves to the word and to prayer. Maybe they started studying Leviticus and then they started preaching to priests. But they never would have been able to do that if they were still trying to run around doing everything. See, we're a family and we need to be a community that is serving. And every family member has chores. And we all need to make sure that we are pulling our weight, that we are doing what God has called us to do. Are we a serving community? So the gospel's growing. Priests get saved. Acts chapter 7, Stephen, who's one of those seven people set apart for for serving the food, he ends up uh, going on trial, shares his testimony. He's the first Christian martyr, but even despite all of this opposition, the gospel continues to grow. Chapter 8 is that turning point where Because of the persecution, they're not just in Jerusalem now. They're spreading out into Judea and Samaria. And then in chapter 9, Saul, the one who was actively persecuting Christians, he gets saved on his way to Damascus. And he spends some time in Damascus. And then eventually he comes to Jerusalem. And take a look at chapter 9, verse 26, when the Apostle Paul arrives in Jerusalem. It says, when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him. Just think about that phrase, he attempted to join the disciples. I I just want us all to think right now. How many people over the seven year history of our church have come through that door And have attempted to join the disciples. And then walked out and said, I just just don't belong here. And how many times do we think, oh, that's someone else's job. I see that person sitting over by themselves or that person trying to make their way to harvest kids. They don't know what's going on. One of the staff will do it or one of the other other people will do it. Isn't that what the welcome team is for? They'll, They'll welcome them. If we are going to be a church that is going to have true, authentic gospel growth, 
not just I don't like my old church, so I'm coming to this church, and, and, and that happens. But if we're going to be a church that has authentic gospel growth, some people are going to come through that door that are going to be scary to us. That we're going to have difficulty relating to or connecting to. And we are going to have to overcome whatever prejudice we have, overcome whatever fear we have. Because Paul's first appearance in the church at Jerusalem didn't go so well. He wanted to join, but no one was willing to reach out to him. No one was willing to welcome him. It says that they were all afraid. It says, for they did not believe that he was a disciple because of his past, because of the things that he had said and done before. And how many people here visit our church and then, they, and then after a, spending a service with us or a couple of weeks with us say, well, if people, if people really knew who I was, they wouldn't accept me here. But then look with me at verse 27. But Barnabas. All it took was one guy. All it took was just one person to reach out to Paul. And Barnabas' example causes us to ask ourselves this question. Are we a welcoming community? Are we a welcoming community? I don't know if Barnabas was wearing a navy blue golf shirt. I don't know if he had sermon notes in his hand. Probably not. Being welcoming is not just the responsibility of ushers and greeters and the welcome team. Being welcoming is on all of us. And it's an individual decision. Paul's first Christian friend was Ananias, a different Ananias than the Acts 5 Ananias. The only reason Ananias became Paul's friend was because God told him to in a dream. Barnabas had no dream, Barnabas had no vision. Barnabas had a heart that was welcoming, that was motivated by love. A love for people who had a sketchy past. A love for people that brought up a significant amount of fear in the whole Christian community. Just think about how the book of Acts would turn out without verse 27. Paul's missionary journeys... Paul's imprisonment, Paul standing before these different rulers. Think about how the rest of the New Testament would turn out without verse 27. All the letters that he wrote, all of the sound doctrine that we now know because Barnabas reached out to Paul. Because one person made, again, don't ignore the small acts. So many of us want to be used in great big ways for the Lord and God saying, well, what about the small ways? There is unbelievable potential in just those small little efforts that we take to try to express love to other people. Are we a welcoming community? And so the Apostle Paul gets welcomed in. Barnabas represents him to the group. Look at verse 27. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in, among, in and out among them at Jerusalem preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. He was, he was welcomed in. And then 
Verse 31, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up, built to last, built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, notice this, it multiplied. It multiplied. It grew and grew and grew. Here's the, here's the, uh, the fourth question I want to ask. Are we a growing community? The word multiply, the word growing, the word strengthen appears so many times in the book of Acts. Healthy things grow. Healthy children grow. Healthy churches grow. Are we a growing community? Part of growth is change. You can't have growth unless you allow for change. And so if we are going to be a growing church, we need to be a church that is open to change. The theme of everything that happens from chapter 9 here at the end into chapter 10 and 11 and 12 and 13 is change. In chapter 10, Cornelius is going to get saved. That's a big change. Now Gentiles are being welcomed in. And in chapter 13, we have missionaries being sent out. That's a, that's a change. We're not just going to let persecution send us out. We're actually going to intentionally send people out now. It's a change. If we are going to be a church that is seeking to grow, we need to be a church that is always seeking to change. There are some things for sure that can never change. Jesus has the foundation, our four pillars, all of those. That'll never change. Our mission statement, that'll never change. Some things always have to stay the same, but some things we have to hold with an open hand. That church in Jerusalem had to be willing to change because it was multiplying. It was growing. They used to have the apostles serve all the food. That had to change. They can't, serve, they can't do that anymore. Now they got these seven guys doing it. They used to be afraid of people like Paul. Now they're not afraid of him anymore. They've welcomed him in. We must be open to change because we must be a growing community. Then look with me at Acts Chapter 11, we're going to zero in on this church at Antioch and how it was a growing church. Acts chapter 11, verse 21 says, uh, talking about the church at Antioch, it says, The hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. So this church in Antioch is growing. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he came, he saw the grace of God. He was glad and he exhorted them all to remain faithful. Don't change. Remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. He's saying, your faithfulness can't change. you got to be committed. you got to be devoted. Verse 24, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And even while Barnabas is there, it says, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So verse 21, a great number. Now in verse 24, a great many people. Verse 26, so Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. Things changed. Things had to, the church was growing. Paul was in Tarsus. He needed to change location. The people at Antioch were accustomed to listening to some of the other preachers. But now, here comes Paul. He's their new pastor. And he's going to be preaching and teaching them for a year. And then Paul was going to move on. They had to be open to change because they were constantly growing. Verse 26, for a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. It was growing. And growth means change. I love this. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Little Christs. 
Then at the end of Acts chapter 11, there's word that there's going to be a famine in Jerusalem. So they were committed financially, not just committed financially to the church at Antioch. They were committed financially to the whole church. So they collect an offering and they're going to take it down to Jerusalem. At the end of verse 30, it says, and they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So they leave Antioch, they go down to Jerusalem. Acts chapter 12, this is when Herod arrests James and Peter. James is executed, Peter is set free. Remember, they're praying in that house. Paul and Barnabas were probably in the house because they were in Jerusalem at that time. Their time in Jerusalem wraps up. The church is continuing to grow. Look at Acts chapter 12, verse 24. But the word of God increased and multiplied. Verse 25, and Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. A John, it was actually his house where they were praying. And uh, John now, again, church is growing, things need to change. John was always associated with the church in Jerusalem, but things are growing, things are changing. So John now is going to go with Paul and Barnabas to Antioch. And so... Then we get to Acts chapter 13, which is another transition, another change. They're going to send out Paul and Barnabas for the missionary work. Chapter 13, verse 2. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And so John Mark is with them this whole time. Now we don't have time to revisit the whole missionary journey. I just want you to look at the paragraph headings in the English Standard Version. Look at chapter 13, verse 4, the paragraph that starts there. Barnabas and Saul on Cyprus. Chapter 13, verse 13. Paul and Barnabas in Antioch and Pisidia. Chapter uh, 14, verse 1. Paul and Barnabas at Iconium. Chapter uh, 14, verse 8. Paul and Barnabas in Lystra. Paul and Barnabas. Paul and Barnabas. Paul and, this dynamic duo. This incredible team. They, they, they did everything together. Then in chapter 15... The growth of the church, one of the threats to the growth was legalistic tendencies among some of the Christians. They wanted to put a straitjacket. They wanted to limit the growth, the spread of the gospel, by adding these Jewish requirements onto non-Jewish people. And that's what Acts chapter 15 is all about. In Acts chapter 15, verse 2, who's going to take on these legalistic people? And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem. Okay, we've got to meet with the apostles about this one. Who are you going to send? Paul and Barnabas. 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 The dream team. Doing everything together. And then they come back from Jerusalem again. This is their second trip together down to Jerusalem. Now they're going back to Antioch. They're going to go on a second missionary journey. Check out verse 36. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with him John called Mark, the guy whose house in Jerusalem where they prayed, the guy who started on their first missionary journey with them, verse 38. But Paul thought it was best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. So Paul and Barnabas have this disagreement. Mark, apparently, when he was younger, was a bit of a flake. And he started with them. He was all gung-ho. His boat was ready. And he literally got on a boat and went on this journey with Paul and Barnabas. And then kind of halfway through, maybe he got homesick or whatever. He just, he just, he bailed on them. 
And then they're getting ready to go on trip number two, and they're sort of getting their roster ready. And Barnabas is like, yeah, and we'll take John called Mark. And Paul's like, ah, hold on, man. Let's take someone who's going who's gonna to follow through to the end. And so they have this disagreement. It, it, wasn't, it wasn't just a lighthearted discussion. Look at verse 36. There arose a sharp disagreement. They had words. Uh, this, this was intense. I don't know if I would, I don't know Barnabas too well. I would not want to be in an argument with the Apostle Paul. It says they got in such a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed. Here's the last thing I want us to remember. The last question I want us to ask. Are we a messy community? Acts chapter 15, verses 36 to 39, it's a mess. Two well-respected Christian leaders dividing over, over whether or not to put someone on a boat or not. Two, uh, two close friends. Paul had no friends in Jerusalem until Barnabas. Paul, who everyone wanted to count out until Barnabas reached out to him, is now wanting to count out Mark when Barnabas is reaching out to Mark? It's a mess. Beside uh, verse uh, 37, where it says, Now Barnabas wanted to take with them, John called Mark. Just write in your margin, Colossians 4, verse 10. We're told in Colossians 4, verse 10, that Barnabas and Mark were cousins. So this may not have just been that, you know, Barnabas was really big-hearted and wanted to give people a second chance. There was a little bit of a family connection here that Barnabas knew that he was going to have to have Christmas dinner with the other aunts and uncles and cousins. Probably wasn't on December 25th, or maybe they didn't have Christmas dinner. But there there was a family dynamic there that maybe resulted in Barnabas being too lenient on John Mark. Or maybe Paul was being too harsh. I'm telling you, it was a mess. And I'm telling you that if we are going to be a strong, loving community, we must be a messy community. Because healthy things grow, growing things multiply, and when there's growth, there's often a mess. Some of us, we're familiar with the term, growing pains. Sometimes there's pain in the midst of the growth. Sometimes there is a mess. And the, the, the front yard of my house growing up in Hamilton, we had, a, we, we had a, a maple tree. Maple trees grow like crazy, but they're such a mess. Not only do you get the leaves in the fall, you also get those helicopter seed things that come down to the ground. It's a mess. But the mess shows that it's healthy. The mess shows that that a mess in a church shows that people actually care. Now, if the whole church is a mess and all they're ever doing is fighting, that's a problem. But if the whole church is just this serene, calm, placid place, that's not healthy. Healthy children make a mess. 
I got four of them. They just move from room to room to room. But it's healthy. And if we are going to be a healthy church, a loving church, we have to recognize that there will be some messes. And I don't know, I don't know who was right or who was wrong. Was Barnabas right? Was Paul? We know they got it all sorted out because Paul spoke very favorably when he wrote 1 Corinthians. In chapter 9, verse 6, he talked about Barnabas in a very favorable way. He didn't have a root of bitterness or hold a grudge against him. And even Paul loved Mark at the end of Paul's life. He was with him when he wrote Colossians and Philemon. When he wasn't with him in 2 Timothy, he's asking Mark to come see him. So eventually, Paul and, Bar- Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Mark, they all ended up making up. But there was a mess. And chances are, their relationship became even stronger because of how sharply they disagreed. But I want to share with you a, a verse, it's a, a bit of a, a proverb that seems a little bit random, but it's a verse that I often use when I think about uh, how our church is growing, how our church is doing, and some of the messes that come as a result. It's Proverbs 14, verse 4. It says, Where there are no oxen, the manger is clean, but abundant crops come by the strength of the ox. I grew up in Hamilton, a steel town. I saw a lot more smokestacks than silos growing up. I don't have a lot of experience on a, on a farm like some of us do. But I can imagine that cleaning a manger is not pleasant. And cleaning the area around the manger is not ple- It's a mess. But when you're farming, would you rather have a manger that was always clean because there were no animals there? Because your farm wasn't producing anything? Or are you willing to put up with the mess because the ox that's creating the mess is actually being very productive? And listen, there's lots of churches where you can go to and there's no mess. No one really knows one another. So there's no relationship problem. No one really believes anything. So no one has any strong convictions to get in sort of any argument. There's, there's no growth happening, so there's no need to change. You, listen, you can find that church. There's no mess. I'd rather be in a church with a mess. Not all the time, but every once in a while, I would rather be in a situation where things sometimes have to get messy because I know that that means that things are healthy. Sometimes there's going to be misunderstandings, miscommunication. Sometimes there's going to be hurt feelings. Sometimes there's going to be socially awkward moments. Sometimes it's going to get tense or intense. But that's part of God's plan to supernaturally transform us from sinful and selfish human beings into a holy and loving community. And sometimes that sinfulness and that selfishness rises to the surface. But God has a plan for us, just like he had a plan for Paul and Barnabas. They went in their separate directions. They were doubly fruitful. Even though it was messy. And so we need, to, we need to clarify our expectations. If you're here today and you're considering becoming a Christian. I want you to know that when we invite you to become a Christian. We, we invite you into the mess. That becoming a Christian. Your life, will, your life will be better but it won't be easier. That Jesus loves you and died for you. He has a plan for you. He wants to forgive you for your sin. You can make that decision today. And knowing that you are forgiven and knowing that he is in control gives you the strength to get through whatever struggle or difficulty inside the church or out of the church. So we need to come with clarified 
expectations. We think community should just happen. It doesn't just happen. It requires commitment. We've got to actively and intentionally pursue it. We think that the church exists to serve us. Rather, we exist to serve the church. We also expect expect to be comfortable and, 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 and not be pushed out of our comfort zone. But we need to be welcoming. We need to be willing to change and invite other people in. And we need to be willing to get messy. Because that's part of growing. And Jesus promised, I will build my church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. Selfishness will not prevail against it. Our own sinfulness will not prevail against it. Our own messes will not prevail against it. And he has promised to build his church and to build a church that is built to last. May it be so for us here at Harvest Bible Chapel. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have spoken to us so clearly, Lord. Thank you that we have examples in the book of Acts that are not just a list of rules or commandments, but real human beings who took real risks and real chances, who, who made real sacrifices, and who had real disagreements and real struggles. Thank you that that can be encouraging to us. And God, I pray that you would do a supernatural work in our midst, Lord, that you would unite us as a church as never before, that as our church continues to grow and to flourish, Lord, that you would strengthen us and help us, that you would help us to love one another when we're so prone to love ourselves. And so, God, I pray that you would do such a great work in our midst, Lord, for your glory. We love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Brampton, Ontario. For more information about our church or to contact us, please visit harvestbrampton.ca.